0: Welcome to the Idea Climbing Podcast. Today I'm here with Steve Fretzen, who coaches and trains lawyers in modern-day business development skills, providing precise tips, fresh ideas, and actionable tasks that drive tangible results. Steve is also a three-time author, monthly contributor to the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin, and has his own podcast, Be That Lawyer. In this episode, we discuss the difference between networking and business development, how to successfully network during the pandemic, how to have successful virtual sales meetings, and more. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you for being here, Steve. I appreciate you taking the time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure.
0: And I'd love to jump right in. In our last conversation, we were talking about networking and then business development. And people think often they're the same thing, but they're really different. What? How do you define networking and how do you define business development?
1: So I don't have like the official like dictionary definition, but I would say networking is the act of developing relationships and strategic partnerships. And then business development is the next stage where you take strategic partnerships and relationships and identify needs to to solve problems and therefore make a sale if we want to call it a sale.
0: So the, meaning your product or service should solve a problem for somebody else?
1: Right, right. So if I'm selling, uh, for example, I'm a coach and I, and, I, and I hear that someone has a bunch of business development challenges, uh, they're not getting in front of enough decision makers, then if they do, they're not locking them up, then my solution would be to you know work with them on processes to solve those issues. But my job is not to convince or to pitch or to sell my, you know, the new, new def definition of business development is really more about uh, asking questions, listening, and identifying those needs, compelling reasons to change, and then moving someone, walking someone through a buying decision versus the traditional old, old school methodology of trying to convince somebody to do something.
0: So I take it, do you or don't you sell on the first call or first meeting? So-
1: so me or, or anyone, I would say, I mean, look, if I'm being, you know, straightforward about my philosophy, um, I really don't sell anything. Um, and that sounds weird because we're all in sales, but the re- what I'm trying to do is, is, is again, um, make the whole first meeting about the other person. Uh, it's my opportunity to learn about them, to learn about their issues, the kinds of things that I might be able to help them with. And if, if the answer is that, Uh, I can't, then I will try to refer them to someone who can or take them in a different direction. But if it is something that I can resolve, I want to make sure that I understand their needs, their compelling reasons to change. I want to make sure they're properly qualified so that uh, there's a good fit. And if that's the case, then I'll present solutions that they can then decide to buy or not. So I think that the interesting thing about sales is that I'm actually trying to take the sales out of selling, which is name of my first book sales free selling so it kind of makes sense that i have a philosophy that's very anti-sales and if you think about it uh no one wants to be sold to and i'm going to go back to an old old uh commercial for saturn that was their shtick is that you know no one wants to be sold to when you go into saturn it's one price unfortunately, I don't think they made it (laughs) with that philosophy. They probably uh, had too thin a margin on their cars. But the idea of it was brilliant that uh, come in and we're not going to hard sell you or make you feel uncomfortable. And I think that's the philosophy that's really taking hold these days.
0: How about if someone's getting started with networking, we'll talk about the pandemic in a minute. As far as networking in general, what are some big mistakes that people make?
1: I think it's it's mainly the idea that I just have to go out and do it. Uh, that I just have to go out and 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 stay busy. And so I'm going to join this group, or I'm going to attend that event, or I'm going to start meeting with a bunch of people. And the real problem with that is that you might be meeting with the wrong people in the wrong places for the wrong reasons. And so I think that we really need to take you know the main step back and look at. Who are you targeting as a potential buyer? Who are you targeting as a potential refer of business and where are they? And if you can identify that they're at your local club, then great. If you find that they're at your church or temple, terrific. Uh, maybe they're at a bar association. Maybe they're in a par- part of a charity, whatever the case might be, it's a misstep to just randomly go out and do stuff and expect to get, you know, any kind of real results from that.
0: So it's, starts with knowing your client and referral partners. Uh, I mean, is it creating a profile for each of them or what is it?
1: I certainly think that would help. I mean, again, if I'm an estate planning attorney and I work primarily with attorneys so I can speak to this very well, and I know that my clients could be anybody, but they're typically gonna be people with families and the people that would refer me are other people dealing with those kinds of estate planning needs. So that could be realtors, real estate attorneys, that could be wealth advisors, uh, that are going to say, look, I can handle your money, but do you have an estate plan? And the person would say, what's that? And then, you know, they explain, well, you need to have a plan for your estate if something happens to you or to make sure that your kids get taken care of. Oh, yeah, I need that. Well, here's a person that you need to talk to, and then the referral can happen. So it's, it's developing relationships with the right people that are going to be in the right place and have the right sort of um, uh sort of a a number of people they get in front of that so it's not so random or haphazard like um, like for example a wealth advisor is dealing with people that have the same needs that an estate planner can solve versus again just showing up randomly at some event with random people
0: so as far as networking during the pandemic what is what have been some big shifts for you good bad and otherwise
1: I mean, the bad shifts are it's taken away from many people the going out for drinks, the networking events are slimmed down. Uh, the association meetings are, are are not happening like they used to. So from a standpoint of someone who 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 likes to go out and be active and meet people face to face and and have a very you know, you know robust networking exchange, that's sort of been shut down, give or take. What has replaced it are these virtual meetings, and there's some that are very good, and there's some that are very bad. Um, And again, you're not able to have maybe the same level of contact and relationship building opportunity that you might have face-to-face. Again, you're not sharing drinks, you're not sharing meals, you're not shaking hands. The eye contact might be limited, somebody might be on Zoom, somebody might be looking down. Instead of looking at the camera, they're looking down at your at your face, but that's not the camera. So the eye contact is limited. So there's some negatives there. The positives are the, and I mentioned this to you earlier, Mark, it's the efficiency. It's the idea that in a normal day, you know, if I had three or four meetings and let's say two of them were networking, that would be considered a very good day for me. And now it's like double that I'm meeting with eight or nine people a day and maybe four of them are networking. So it's, it's, it's a way to get in front of a lot more people And the other part of it is that there's also people that might be willing to meet with you now that were willing to meet with you. So for example, let's say that I want to meet with a CEO of a big IT company. Well, that individual normally would put me off and put me off and put me off because, not because they don't like me, but because they're busy and because it means that we're meeting for lunch. Well, that's an hour and a half. They got to drive there. They got to drive back. So they're committing like three hours to a lunch with me. Now I can get them on a Zoom call in 30 minutes and get through the whole thing. And what was the, the, you know, what was the time commitment for them? It was literally 30 minutes and it was no more no less. So that's some of the, the pros and cons of what's going on right now in the, in the networking space.
0: Well, since you can't have the drinks break the, break the proverbial bread and get the closeness that you can to help someone move down a sales funnel, what's, what has shifted when it comes to actual selling since you can't shake hands and you're not sitting across from someone building rapport for an hour? <sighs>
1: You know, selling hasn't changed that much. Um, You know, there's people that like me that that grew up selling on the phone, and that was really hard, but you could still do it. It wasn't an impossible thing to do. So it's not a new thing that that we're not always face-to-face shaking hands and pressing flesh or whatever you want to call it. Uh, So um, while there are some negatives, because again, some people would say, I sell, by. You know, taking someone golfing or I sell by taking them to a game and some of those things don't exist anymore or don't exist in the same way. So we are able to do this through Zoom and, and, and this has become the new kind of way to do things is to become more uh, uh, expert at using Zoom. So looking at the camera and making that eye contact or being more prepared with your research to ask better questions, to find common ground, to find something to talk about, to build that relationship. Whereas before, maybe you would just talk about the weather or just talk about the beautiful day or whatever. Um, And then of course, having a good process to, you know, ask questions, to learn about someone and make, again, the entire environment about them, the entire engagement about them, that's going to still be very much the same as when we were meeting face-to-face.
0: When it comes to relationships, we've known each other for quite a while and reconnected. So I know that you are about relationships. Have you always been that way, or did you discover it somewhere along the way?
1: I mean, I think my whole life I've been about relationships. I don't think, you know, just the way that I'm built, um, you know, I'm a very experiential person. I'm a very, you know, people oriented person. Uh, You know, I've never been about the data. I've never been about um, just running people over to get to what I want. It's never been like that for me. I've always gotten uh, where I've gotten in life, you know, by helping others and by being more of a relationship person. Uh, However, uh, that's, you know, that's not, everybody's not built that way. So some of this stuff has to be learned and some of this stuff has to be, we have to adapt. And so someone that is very analytical or introverted, you know, might think, well, I don't have an opportunity to build relationships or sell services or go out and do these things because I'm not built that way. And I would say 20, 30 years ago, I'd say, yeah, it's going to be hard. And today it's not, because again, I think the whole idea of, of of networking or or selling, it's a learned skill, and so really anybody can do it as long as they have the interest in the will. Um, but uh, building relationships is something that that it's learned, and it's like you know I think you, you can do it if you're just if you're just smart about it.
0: Well, with networking and sales, how do you know where's the tipping point where it's okay to ask for a sale? Because eventually if you're especially if you're an entrepreneur or entrepreneurial, your incomes, you know, you're directly responsible for your income. Chances are, at some point, you have to ask for the sale in some way, shape or form. How do you know when you've tipped and it's appropriate to shift gears?
1: So what I've, you know, been doing for many years is I've been developing processes to make a sales call, uh, something that um, can go very um, very smoothly to, ac- to accomplish one of two things. Either it's a fit and there's a reason for us to work together and I can make the ask in a very comfortable way or quite frankly, have the buyer say, Steve, what do we do next? How do we move this forward? So now I'm not even making the ask. The other objective that I have is how do I get someone to a no as quickly as possible? And I don't mean that in a nasty or mean way. I mean that in a way where I've identified that the fit doesn't exist there's some barrier there that we're not going to be able to get through together. And how quickly can I move that out of my pipeline? Now I will tell you that my background, and I may mention this a little bit is, is to outwork everybody. It was always in, in my jobs to have the, 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 the most full pipeline and just to not take no for an answer because that was sales in the eighties and nineties. That's the way we did it. In some instances, I would hear have to hear no six times before I gave up. I mean, that's how intense it is. Imagine that today where someone says, no, I appreciate your time, but I'm not interested. And you didn't give up six times. You would be ostracized from the, from the community, maybe the world, because you'd be that, that it's that in, in crazy of a scenario to go through that with someone who's selling a service or a product. Um, But back then when there was no information and, and people were different. So, the, the way that I know that someone is is ready for the ask, which is your original question, right, is I qualify them on four levels. And if they pass these four levels, then I'm ready to talk about next steps. The first level is, do they have needs? And are those needs compelling enough for them to want to make a change? All right. So to put it back into my space, if I'm dealing with a lawyer and the lawyer sort of convinces me that they've got problems that are significant or growth that, that they're looking to accomplish, and it's not happening on their own, his or her own, that, and it's compelling. Like they're, they're, they're interested in changing. I also ask some commitment questions. Are they committed to making a change? Whether it's with me or not, I don't care, but I want to know that they're committed to take action on it. Because if you think about it, if they have problems, but they're not willing to take action, then where are we going with this? Why are we proceeding forward with someone who's not committed to changing their situation if they've convinced me that they need to? The third thing I try to qualify is, Are they? is this person, in fact, the decision maker? Because if not, I want to meet with the other people or the other person that might be involved. And then lastly is, do they have the financial wherewithal to engage me? If somebody has $500 and my program is, let's say, significantly more than that, Uh, And that's all they have to invest. Well, why wouldn't I want to learn that before trying to ask for business that I'm never going to get. So again, if I if I can identify that someone has needs committed to change, they are the decision maker, and they have the financial wherewithal, that's someone I'd like to talk to about taking next steps. If any of those four qualifiers aren't happening, then why would I proceed to a proposal presentation or making an ask, they're just simply not qualified.
0: As far as discovering the financial details, is it a conversation you have beforehand or is that just the ask? You made the ask, you tell them it's $5,000, they say yes or no, or if you want to get to know quickly, is there a way to find out ahead of time what the budget could be without having to directly ask for a sale?
1: Yeah, so there are some sort of indirect questions that you can ask to try to identify what the, where someone's mindset is about about making an investment in a service or a product. So, for example, if um uh, if I have a, um, a a carpenter coming into my home to look at a bathroom remodel and that carpenter walks in and sees my beautiful kitchen, couldn't that carpenter shouldn't that carpenter ask some questions like, "Oh, what a beautiful kitchen! When did you have it done? Oh, we had it done ten years ago. Who'd you use for that? Oh, we used ABC remodelers. Oh, wow. Uh, and, you know, what is that? What is that about a 50, 60, $70,000 kitchen? Oh, yeah, it was like 75. It was it's crushing. Isn't it then safe for that carpenter to carpenter to assume that we're probably not going to spend $500 on the bathroom that we've already invested in our home that we get the value of putting money into the home and, and making things look nice. So that's like some some kind of qualifying background type questions that are going to help me identify that this is someone who who has the financial wherewithal and is interested in investing in their home in that scenario in my scenario I would ask you know have you ever worked with a coach before have you ever invested in marketing you know how do you get business um, you know so that I'm getting a flavor for that and then if that doesn't lead anywhere certainly I could ask you know have you thought about you know, uh, a budget for for me working with you on your business and and growing things out, and they might say no, and I say, well, you know, let me tell you kind of a range of what what things typically look like. And again, if the range is five to twenty thousand, and they've got five hundred in their pocket, I have my answer. If they say, yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, well, then I know I'm in a better position. I mean, the worst thing that the worst feeling in the world is when you have someone that is the right fit, and you put a proposal together, and the proposal is twenty thousand. And you never hear from them again. And you don't know why. Well, I know why. It's because they had no clue that it was going to be that kind of money and had no budget or no interest in investing that kind of money. And you didn't do your job of identifying sort of where they were before you sent the proposal. And I've had that happen to me. Someone sent me a proposal for $85,000 for a new website. I mean, it was a 60. Yeah, it was a 60 page proposal at 85,000. Yeah, 60 page proposal. So there's a, you know, that's an extreme example, but that's, that's what's going on when people don't know what to put in the proposal because they didn't spend the time to ask the right questions and really qualify the situation, the person, et cetera, prior to making that pitch or presenting a proposal or solving a problem.
0: What are the basics that need to be in a good proposal without going to 60 pages? (laughs)
1: I think, I think people oversell. I think they they try to put everything in the kitchen sink in there. I mean, what I try to say is that if I've properly qualified somebody, I know what their hot buttons are and I know what they need to see, hear, or experience within my proposal that's going to get them over the finish line. In fact, I asked this question and this is like a great, I don't want to say technique, but it is a great question to ask. So, So I could ask someone sort of near the end of a, of a qualifying meeting. So let me, and I'll play it out with you, Mark. So on a scale of one to 10, 10 being that, you know, you want to get a proposal from me and and everything else and move forward to the next step. And a one is, you know, Steve, get out of my office. I never want to see you again. You know, where would you say you sort of fall? And let's say that you say you're like a seven. And I could say that's seven. Seven's great. Why a seven, Mark? And you tell me, you know. So I guess I'm doing this role play by myself, actually. But uh, <laughs> thanks, for your, thanks for your participation. I don't need you at all. Um, and you would, and you would say something like, uh, "Well, Steve, you seem like a great fit. You seem like you really know the, you know, you know the the environment well, and you seem like you really get me." And I would say, "So, Mark, let me ask you then. You know, what types of things are you looking to see, hear, or experience to kind of get to that ten, to get to that point where you really want to." Um, you know, get that proposal and and what should be in the proposal that, that, you know, interests you. And you're basically going to help me write the proposal by telling me, I want to see your pricing. I want to see your solutions. I want to see a case study. Well, you just gave me three things that should be in the proposal. Should I put another 10 things in there that you didn't ask for that aren't going to matter or that are just fluff? Probably not. So that's, a suggestion to people that are overselling or over proposing that you want to be thorough, but you want to make sure it's absolutely relevant to the needs of the prospective client. And that's going to help lock up more business than you rambling on like that website guy did on that 60 page proposal.
0: That's insane.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was insane. And it's funny because I went to page 59, I read the price and that's it. And he never heard from me again and he never will. And I don't even think he's in business anymore because the guy was out of his mind. Um, But that just shows how bad some people can be on the sales front because they just don't understand that you need to have a sophisticated yet simple process. You can't just go in and wing it like the old days. You know, sales used to be considered a transference of enthusiasm. It was the sizzle of the steak in the Outback Steakhouse restaurant. You know, that was their commercial, the steak sizzling and the smell of it. And that's what sold. I'll have the steak, you know, and that people would say, I'll have that steak. All right. And that's not what sales is today. You know, it's definitely about people feeling understood, uh, people feeling like um, there's a good fit because you've asked the right questions, you've done the proper diagnosis, you know, and a saying in my space is prescription before before diagnosis is malpractice. And there's a lot of people going out and asking for the business or offering solutions or doing free advice, providing free advice before they've actually diagnosed and qualified the prospective client. And again, it's a huge misstep.
0: In closing, when it comes to business development and or networking as a whole, if you were going to say, impart one piece of wisdom above all else. If you're going to do one thing, do this. What would that be?
1: Well, above the, above all else. Um, I would say it's, it it comes down to what I call the three P's. So I'm I'm giving you a three part answer on your one part question, but I call it the three P's of business development and it, it relates to everything. So number one is to have a plan. If you have something that tells you what to do and where to go and who to get in front of and why you've got this plan that you can follow every day. It's like having a really good GPS system. So all of my clients have a plan. Nobody's, you know, without a plan and just winging it, that's off the table. Number two is that just like with anything good in life, there should be a process. You know, if I'm going to take a trip with that plan, I want to have a process of where I'm going to go and what I'm going to see. And I want steps of how I'm going to make this a great journey. And same thing with sales. You know, you you want to have a, a good process to follow that's going to allow you to kind of know what's going on, get the information you need to get pull out lies that are that are potentially happening with prospects, because that's their thing. They're gonna give you whatever you they they just want price and information. And as soon as you give it to them, you're sort of out. So you want to make sure you've got a good process that keeps them in the loop with you and allows you to understand them at a high level. And the last point is maybe the most important. And it's what I call performance improvement. Because if you're if you have a process, but you're being ineffective with how you run it, and it's not getting you the results, well, then that's just imperfect practice. So it was Lombardi that said, um, don't, uh, practice doesn't make perfect, perfect practice makes perfect. And so this is performance improvement. We have to go on a meeting, leave the meeting and then debrief it. What did you like about what happened? What did you not like about what happened? What could have gone better? What didn't go well? What questions should you have asked that you didn't? And then make the improvement for the next one and the next one and the next one. And eventually you get very good at this. And same thing with networking. This is something that you just have to continually self-assess or have a coach work with you to assess and keep improving. And eventually it just becomes how you do things. So that's sort of what people need today and what most people unfortunately don't have.
0: Thank you very much for the time, Steve. I appreciate it.
1: Absolutely, my pleasure. I really um, enjoyed being on the show, Mark.
0: Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I also hope that you'll subscribe to the Idea Climbing podcast and rate us on iTunes. Visit ideaclimbing.com to learn more about idea climbing and hear more episodes about mentoring, marketing, and big ideas.